Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Paul's Previous Way of Life, From Violent Aggression to Indiscriminate Love, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, June the 10th, 2007. Exactly four days after Eugenio Pacelli was elected as Pope Pius XII in February 1939, he wrote a letter to, quote, the illustrious Herr Adolf Hitler, Fuhrer and Chancellor of the German Reich. Here at the beginning of our pontificate, we wish to assure you that we remain devoted to the spiritual welfare of the German people entrusted to your leadership. During the many years we spent in Germany, we did all in our power to establish a harmonious relationship between church and state. Now that the responsibilities of our pastoral function have increased our opportunities, how much more ardently do we pray to reach that goal? May the prosperity of the German people and their progress in every domain come with God's help to fruition. Thus did Hitler's Pope, as John Cornwell's book title calls Pius XII, flatter one of the greatest moral monsters in history. This example of religion's collusion with evil comes from the new bestseller, God is Not Great, by Christopher Hitchens, who uses it in many other hypocrisies to try to show how, quote, all the claims of established religion are bogus and man-made and undeserving of anything but contempt and ridicule, end quote. I think Hitchens fails to achieve his lofty goal, but he does succeed in an unfortunately much easier and important task, which is to remind us just how malevolent religion can be. Cruelty and coercion intimidation and intolerance, bigotry and bloodshed. These Hitchin Chronicles in page after page are the religious toxins that poison the world today. The Apostle Paul's autobiographical remarks in this week's epistle in Galatians chapter 1 provide another case study of what Hitchin right, Hitchens rightly detests about religion and also a trenchant reminder of how horribly misguided religious sincerity can be. Before his conversion, Paul was a violent religious fanatic. After his conversion, though, he summarized the entire Bible of his day in five words. We read in Galatians 5.14, Love your neighbor as yourself. Or again, don't ever weary in taking opportunity to do good to all people. Galatians 6, 9 and 10. Which is to say that Paul's story is not only a case study of religious fanaticism, but also a paradigm of how authentic religious conversion, which has a beginning point but no end, validates itself by the repudiation of hatred in all its guises and the demonstration of an indiscriminate love for all people. 
Scattered throughout the New Testament, Paul describes himself as a former religious zealot who tried to exterminate the early Christian movement. He supported the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, in Acts 7. And then we read, breathing threats of murder. Paul collaborated with authorities to track down believers from house to house, drag them back to Jerusalem, and then imprison them in an effort to make them renounce their faith. We read that he worked fervently to destroy the church. Acts chapter 8, verse 3, chapter 9, verse 1. And so to the Galatians, Paul wrote in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. Writing to the Philippians, he bragged, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Even as an old man, Paul seems to have been haunted by memories of his abusive past. Near the end of his life, when he wrote his protege, Timothy, he regretted that he was, quote, formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, 1 Timothy 1.13. To the Corinthians, he admitted that he didn't deserve to be called an apostle and was at best the least of the apostles because of his manic violence, 1 Corinthians 15.9. People instinctively discounted the stories about Paul's conversion that began to circulate. When he returned to Jerusalem after his conversion in Damascus, we read that he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple, Acts 9.26. Barnabas, aptly nicknamed Son of Encouragement, vouched for Paul and eventually reconciled him with the church in Jerusalem. Paul remained personally unknown to most believers, of course, and so he wrote to the Galatians, quote, People only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Galatians 1.23 As Hitchin shows in his book, God is Not Great, Many believers today try to prove the authenticity of their religious faith through overt bigotry, cruelty, and sometimes sheer stupidity, whether spewing hate at gays, peddling junk science, blowing themselves up, or coddling state power. In contrast, when Paul was apprehended, as he puts it in Philippians 3.12, by Jesus on the road to Damascus, his conversion proceeded in the diametrically opposite direction, away from violent aggression and toward indiscriminate love. After his conversion, instead of building his own spiritual fiefdom, Paul couldn't even remember whom he had baptized. Rather than getting rich off the gospel, he publicly boasted that he preached free of charge and coveted no one's money. He actively opposed the slightest hint of any personality cult predicated upon his reputation. 
He sharply rebuked Christians who reveled in dogmatic certitude about theological minutiae. In stark contrast to people who rightly feared the pre-convert Paul because of his fanatical violence, he resorted to irony and quote-unquote apologized to those who complained that whereas his letters were weighty, in person Paul came across as timid and unimpressive. His limited cooperation with state power resulted in beatings and jail time, not special pleading for unique privileges. To the fakers and posers who hustled themselves as super-apostles, Paul boasted about his many weaknesses and sufferings. Dubious displays of such outward religiosity, said Paul, have no value. A lawyer once asked Jesus an obvious question. Are some parts of the Bible more important than others? Which laws are peripheral and insignificant? And which ones are weighty and essential? Jesus responded that the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second, said Jesus, is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus thus drew a necessary connection between claiming to love God in demonstrating that we love our fellow human beings. This connection became so embedded in the early Christian traditions that it's repeated almost verbatim by Paul, Romans 13, 8 and 9, and Galatians 5, 14, by James, James 2, verse 8, and most memorably by John in 1 John chapter 4, 20 to 21. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Even though I disagree with Hitchens' atheism, I'm glad I read his book, his 300 pages of painful reminders of gross hypocrisy and pseudo-spirituality wouldn't have been such a bitter medicine if we Christians had kept the main thing, the main thing. We read in Galatians 5:6, the only thing that counts, says Paul, is faith expressing itself through love. For without concrete deeds of love, he said in 1 Corinthians 13, we are but nothing. And now for further reflection. What has been your own experience of religious violence, whether physical, verbal, political, or even psychological? Are there certain types of people whom you find hard to love? Number three, what are some of the excuses we give for placing other priorities ahead of indiscriminate love for all people? Consider the words of St. Maximus the Confessor, who lived in the seventh century. Blessed is the one who can love all people equally, always thinking good of every person.
And finally, see the book, Must Christianity Be Violent? by Kenneth R. Chase and Alan Jacobs. For books this week, I review Sarah Miles' Take This Bread, A Radical Conversion. New York, Ballantine, 2007, 283 pages. Sarah Miles describes herself as a blue state secular intellectual, a lesbian and a left-wing journalist who developed habits of deep skepticism from covering revolutionary movements in Central America. Her grandparents on both sides were missionaries, but in reaction to that upbringing, her parents were actively hostile to religion. So it's a bit of an understatement that Sarah Miles also describes herself as, quote, a very unlikely convert, end quote. But at the age of 46, Miles walked into St. Gregory's Episcopal Church in San Francisco, partook of the Eucharist, and experienced a radical conversion. She had never heard a gospel reading, never said the Lord's Prayer, and knew only one person who went to church. Today, she's on staff at St. Gregory's. That was some eight years ago, and only the beginning of further conversions for Miles. Building upon her life experiences as a chef, her conversion through the Eucharist, passion for the poor, and the founding vision of St. Gregory's Church, in the year 2000, Miles started a food pantry at her church that gave away free groceries with no questions asked and no forms to fill out. Each week, food for about 400 families was placed upon the Eucharistic altar. Such was the open communion and unconditional acceptance that she experienced at St. Gregory's and intended to extend to anyone who was hungry. Through connections with the San Francisco Food Bank and the generosity of unexpected donors, the miracle of the loaves multiplied, and Miles went on to jumpstart nine more food pantries around the city. Mundane food for the body became not only a sign of God's kingdom, but as theologians would say, the actual thing signified. Those who received wanted to give. Care for broken spirits accompanied bread for hungry bodies. If you spend any time in church, you'll especially appreciate Miles's candid descriptions of the disruptions and divisions that the food pantries caused at St. Gregory's. At one point, more homeless, schizophrenic, and drug-crazed hungry people came to the food pantry than artsy, proper worshipers to the church services. While Miles saw this as a blessing, you can easily imagine that others saw it as a sort of curse. With her story of radical Christian conversion and the incarnation of daily discipleship, Miles will join other feminist authors who have earned a broad readership because of the authenticity with which they've written about loving Christ, loving the church, and loving the world. Joan Chittister, Nora Gallagher, Anne Lamott, Kathleen Norris, Marilyn Robinson, and Barbara, Tam Barbara Brown Taylor all come to mind. 
When I finished her book, my mind kept returning to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 4.21, that the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. In Galatians 5.6, the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. Sarah Miles, Take This Bread, A Radical Conversion. For movies this week, I review the film Bobby from the year 2006. It's a shame that director Emilio Estevez exploited one of the worst tragedies in, in American history and the memory of one of our best political leaders in order to make such a horrible movie. In fact, the film has nothing to do with the life, the assassination, or even the political context of Bobby Kennedy's life and times, save for the occasional archival footage that is spliced in at intervals. Instead, this film, Bobby, pearl strings a half dozen mini soap operas about uninteresting people who happened to be staying at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles when Kennedy was assassinated on June the 4th, 1968 by Sirhan Sirhan. Director Estevez then markets the film with a deceptive title, populates these soap operas with big names like Demi Moore, Martin Sheen, Lindsay Lohan, William Macy, Heather Graham, Martin Sheen, and Sharon Stone, and then laughs all the way to the bank. This is filmmaking at its worst. It punishes the viewer. Bobby, from the year 2006. And finally, for poetry this week, We've posted a poem called The End of Fear by G.K. Chesterton. G.K. Chesterton lived from 1874 to 1936. The End of Fear. Though the whole heaven be one-eyed with the moon, though the dead landscape seem a thing possessed, yet I go singing through that land oppressed, as one that singeth through the flowers of June. No more with forest fingers crawling free or dark flint wall that seems a wall of eyes, shall evil break my soul with mysteries of some world poison maddening bush and tree. No more shall leering ghosts of pimp and king with bloody secrets veiled before me stand. Last night I held all evil in my hand closed, and behold, it was a little thing. I broke the infernal gates and looked on him who fronts the strong creation with a curse. Even the God of a lost universe, smiling above his hideous cherubim. And pierced far down in his soul's crypt unriven, the last black crooked sympathy and shame, inhaled him with that ringing rainbow name erased upon the oldest book in heaven. Like emptied idiot masks, sin's loves and wars stare at me now, for in the night I broke the bubble of a world of a great world's jest 
and woke laughing with laughter such as shakes the stars. G.K. Chesterton, The End of Fear. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, June the 10th, 2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.